This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus coronavirus has taken over. Patch Tuesday never disappoints, and HIPAA stats to perk you up. This is episode 20. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so that you can better protect your business and your identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawash Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawajtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, everyone, as always, thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We do have a question of the week, but before we jump into that, uh, wherever you're listening to this, if you could like, share, comment, um, review it, tell someone else about it, send up smoke signals, whatever it might be, uh, greatly appreciated because uh, if the more you share, the more people are informed, the more people are informed, the less likely we are to be become victims of phishing attacks, ransomware attacks, malware, and, and, and hacking in general. Uh, also, if you are in a HIPAA-compliant business, Please go to Facebook, type in Get HIPAA, Compli- uh, Get, Get HIPAA Compliance in the search and join the group because we share lots of HIPAA news and uh, knowledge and so forth in that group and it will, it will greatly improve your HIPAA awareness in your business and in your life. All right, so question of the week. Is there a checklist that can be used to perform a HIPAA audit? The short answer is no. The long answer is you can use a checklist as sort of a guideline, but the problem is that every business, every every healthcare business is going, and every business associate that was also required to do a HIPAA audit, by the way, every business is going to be unique. So a HIPAA audit for my business, an IT business, is going to be different than that of the dentist down the street because we have different um Different things we had we need to look at. I don't I don't host any client files here, but the dentist does. Um, I don't you know I probably have better security than they do. So there's different things that need to be looked at and addressed depending on your security risk assessment and your entire HIPAA audit. Uh, I don't have a sign in sheet at the front desk. Um, maybe they do. Uh, I hope they don't because they shouldn't. But maybe they do. Um, also the HHS does have a tool, a free tool that you can download on their website for for the, the security risk assessment portion of this the HIPAA audit, and that's really that's all it is. Some questions and so forth. Now we partner we partner with um, HIPAA Secure Now to help with the audits because it does help us kind of stay organized with the audit, I guess you could say. So that is something to think about. But there's not really a checklist per se. There are lots of checklists out there, and even, and I have checklists on our website as well. But that's not really an audit. It's just kind of a, a guideline to follow to get you started, really, is all it is. Um, so hopefully that helps answer that question. And if you uh, need further clarification, just let me know. Um, for Patch Tuesday, it is Patch Tuesday week, second Tuesday of the month. 
We have uh, updates to Google Chrome and Firefox to start off with. Firefox just updated last night for my clients. Should be version 74 now. There were lots of Microsoft updates this week. There was 115 total patches, um, and I don't remember the number, but there were a number of critical patches involved with that. Here it is, 100, 115 vulnerabilities, of which it looks like 24 are critical. Most of those doing having something to do with remote code execution or the scripting engine. Um, there, there. Well, there is a big vulnerability with Windows SMB v3 tracked as CVE 2020-0796 um, that was not patched on Tuesday. However, there was a patch released yesterday for it, so um, you'll need to get that patched ASAP as well, ASAP. Uh, that is a warmable uh, vulnerability, meaning it can spread from computer to computer. So once it's compromised, it will jump around to other computers. Um, and if you recall, SMBV1 was the vulnerability that um, that WannaCry used. So you'll want to get that addressed as soon as you can. Um, Intel also released a bunch of security updates for various products. So if you see an update for Intel, um, you'll want to get that updated because it does address some vulnerabilities. I'm reading most of this updates from, from uh, the CISA's website, so you can go there and look at the the list of the updates that are available. Um, not as many as there was in January and February, uh, but you have some from Intel, from of course from Microsoft, Google Chrome update to dash uh, to one three two, and I'm sorry, yes, dot one three two, and then Firefox seventy four. And then uh, so that does it for the updates portion of the show. We will move on to our news. All right, so we have a little bit of news. It's, it's actually been a pretty quiet news week. I mean, relatively speaking, that is. But we do have some news. So first up on the bleep, on bleeping computer, Ryuk ransomware behind Durham, North Carolina cyber attack. So Durham, North Carolina the municipality was attacked last weekend. It has shut down. They did shut down the network. I haven't seen an update for this. So they did shut down the network after suffering a cyber attack by Ryuk ransomware this weekend. And it was confirmed that it was a Russian hacking group. Local media reports that the city hall victim fell victim to a phishing attack that ultimately led to the deployment of the Ryuk ransomware on their systems. According to the SBI, the ransomware named Ryuk was started by a Russian hacker group and finds its way into a network once someone opens a malicious email attachment. Once inside, Ryuk can spread across network servers to file shares to individual computers. To prevent the attack from spreading throughout their network, the city of Durham has temporarily disabled all access into the DCI network for the Durham Police Department, the Durham Sheriff's Office, and their communications center. This has caused the city's 911 call center to shut down and for Durham Fire, Durham's fire department to lose phone service. 911 calls, though, are being answered. They probably have been rerouted. While they have not seen signs that data has been stolen, the city was warned that users should be on the lookout for phishing emails pretending to be from the city of Durham. So... Um, another case of a municipality probably not being prepared for that. Obviously, not not much for fishing education going on there. 
Uh, a new U.S. bill aims to protect researchers who disclose government backdoors. So this is kind of good news. This is also reported on Bleeping Computer. New legislation has been introduced that amends the Espionage Act of 1917 to protect journalists, whistleblowers, and security researchers who discover and disclose classified government information. The goal of new legislation is to amend the Espionage Act of 1917 so it cannot be used to target report, reporters, whistleblowers, and security researchers who discover and publish classified government secrets. Concerned that the current laws are being used for partisan prosecution, U.S. Representatives Ro Khanna, a Democrat of California, introduced a new legislation to Congress on March 5, 2020, and U.S. Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat from Oregon, will soon introduce it to the Senate. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about the de some of the details of the bill. Um, but it raises an interesting point. So the Espionage Act of 1917, more than 100 years ago, means it's time to update that act, time to update those laws, right? And, and I think that's true for a lot of laws that we still hold on to, that we keep close to our chest in this country. Some of those laws need to be updated. You can't, um, you can't live on something that was created over 100 years ago and expect it to still be relevant today. Uh, also, Bleepy Computer Ransomware threatens to reveal companies' dirty secrets. The operators of the Sodonokibi Ransomware are threatening to publicly share a company's dirty financial secrets because they refuse to pay the demanding ransom. As organizations decide to restore their data manually or via backups instead of paying ransoms, ransomware operators are escalating their attacks. In a new post by the Sodonokibi operators to their data leak site, we could see that attackers are not only publishing victims' data, but also sifting through it to find damaging information that could be used against the victim. In the above post, the attackers are threatening to sell social security numbers and dates of birth of people in the, in the data to other hackers on the dark web. So you can see uh, on the article, there's an image here from, from, um, from a, a breach that they committed where they have data. Um, it is only a small part of the data. They also intimate that they found dirty financial secrets in the data and threatened to disclose it. And it and their quote is it's only a small part of our data, of your data, and it's in picture for now. Every day more and more information will be uploaded. Social security numbers and dates of birth and other information about people will be sold in dark web to people who will use them for their probably dark deals. After revealing people's personal data, they will be informed who is guilty in publications. There is also other interesting information. Your financial reports are very interesting and dirty. These secrets will be revealed a little later to certain people. So what does that mean? It means if you are doing something a little less than ethical when it comes to your finances and your business, you're going to want to take a look at your security because if they grab it, they're going to expose you. And so now you're looking at a double-edged sword here because now you're going to have to deal with them and you're going to have to deal with the authorities. Um, HHS finalizes interoperability rules, seven things to know. This was reported on beckershospitalreview.com. And so I'm just going to go through real quick here. The two rules issued by the ONC and CMS Support the My Health Data Initiative and the 21st Century Cures Act. Uh, seven things you need to know about the finalized rules. Number one, the ONC final rule pinpoints necessary activities that do not constitute information blocking and establishes new regulations to prevent information blocking practices by providers, health IT developers, health information exchanges, and health information networks. Two, under ONC's new rule, EHR users will be able to share health records, data, and formats such as screenshots or video. The rule outlines 
new provisions for health IT developers to ensure that providers using their products can communicate about health IT usability, user experience, interoperability, and security using virtual method, visual methods. Number three, ONC's final rule also requires EHRs to provide necessary clinical data, include data classes to promote new de- new business models of care. The rule supports the advancement of common data through the U.S. Core Data for Interoperability, which is a standardized set of health data classes and data elements used for nationwide health information exchange. Number four, ONC's final rule also establishes standardized application programming interface requirements to support patients' free access and, and control of their electronic health data via smartphone app of their choice. Number five, CMS's interoperability and patient access final rule requires Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, CHIP, and federal exchanges health plans to electronically share claims data with patients beginning January 21st of 2021. The patient access API required, that's, this is number six, the patient access API required by CMS will allow patients to access their health data through any third-party app they pick to connect to the API and will integrate a, patient, a health plan's information with the patient's EHR. Patients can take their health and claims data with them as they move from different health plans and providers. And number seven, under CMS's final rule, the agency will establish a new condition of participation for all Medicare and Medicaid participating hospitals, requiring them to send electronic notifications to other health care facilities or community providers when a patient is admitted, transferred, or discharged. Beginning April 1st, 2022, CMS will also require States to send enrollee data for beneficiaries enrolled in both Medicare and Medicaid. So that is on beckershospitalreview.com. You can go review the rest of that uh, with links to the actual um, documents there. CISA warns against COVID-19 cyber scams and provides security trips, uh, security tips. Sorry. So there have been a number of COVID-19 cyber scams already. Most of them around phishing, but there are others. So CISA has issued a warning. Um, you can see that on the CISA's website, and uh, there is a guide as well for it. So um, you can review all of that. But so in short, the um, HHS, the WHO, and CDC, all those agencies, they're now going to proactively email you or contact you. You have to be on their list for them to do that. You should not click on any links or download any documents that purport to be from those agencies if you have not signed up for their mailing list. And even if you do, I would, I would, you know, be very cautious. Also, any websites claiming to have a vaccine or a cure, those are not real. Just ignore them and uh, close them. Don't visit those websites, essentially. And they're, they're just more and more being created um, rapidly. And I'm receiving emails and, and notifications every day about new scams. There is a map that shows uh, the number of cases of COVID-19, as well as as well as um, number of um, people that have recovered and the p- deaths and so forth. The only legitimate one is on John Hopkins' website, and I believe it's coronavirus. J hs.edu i believe is what it was and if you want to use that great use that otherwise don't because what people are it's coronavirus.jhu.edu what people are doing is using this map to hide malware on their sites and then in doing so people are are installing malware on their computers uh, and then finally, we have Fake Tech Support Company. This is on infosecurity-magazine.com. Fake Tech Support Company dupes 40,000 victims out of $8 million. 
So a college dropout has admitted using malware and fake, this is in India, and fake, um, I think it was India, if, yes, India, and fake tech support company to con 40,000 victims out of millions of dollars. Former engineering student Amit Chahan set up a bogus tech support call center call, company called Tech Support in January 2019 together with his accomplice and, and Jind resident Sumit Kumar Johan ran the center from upscale Udiog Vihar area of Gurugram, a city just southwest of New Delhi in northern India. Victims who called up the fake company for technical support were asked to go online and click on a particular pop-up. When they did, malware was activated that stole the victim's financial data. Chauhan admitted to police that he and Kumar had used the fake company and malicious pop-ups to dupe over 40,000 foreign nationals out of more than what is works out to eight million U.S. dollars, and this was in just over a year. So they started in January of 2019. Um, so keep that in mind before you pick up the phone and and dial someone randomly, you know, because you have a pop up in your screen, and that's exactly what it was was a pop up in the screen saying your computer, you know, something like your computer's been compromised. Call us. Here's the number, and we'll help you. Let's do a little focusing. Um, <clears throat> obviously, again, the COVID-19 coronavirus is taking a hold of our, our country and, and the world as a, as a whole. Um, so we're going to talk about a topic that has come up quite a bit in the last week or so, at least here where I am in, in the world, um, and that is work from home. So the global spread of the COVID-19 coronavirus means more of us will be working remotely. CIOs need to help their businesses and employees deal with this change now and in the longer term. And this is on ZDNet. So, so now what I'm going to go over, this applies to smaller businesses who don't have a CIO. Uh, that would be someone like me in this case that would, would handle your IT. And, and then we would set you up to work from home. So the risk of COVID-19 infection means IT executives are swapping the airport lounge and the conference hall for a desk at home and a video conferencing link. Companies around the globe are making a sensible decision to encourage working from home and drop travel plans. While many major IT conferences have been pushed online or postponed, for many people that work in the technology sector, the normal way of doing business, meeting and greeting in locations around the globe has been put on hold. We're still still in the early, very early days of a pandemic, so it's hard to know how long the situation will remain in place. In a Q&A on its website, the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control says simply that it's not possible to predict how long the outbreak will last and how the epidemic will unfold. The human cost is already huge with thousands of confirmed cases and deaths globally. Even for the people who don't suffer from the infection, the potential impact in terms of disruption to daily lives is huge. Analyst Gardner says COVID-19 has the potential to be as disruptive to an organization's continuity of operations as a cyber intrusion or a natural disaster. Researcher Forrester, meanwhile, says the central role of technology in business operations means that IT leaders have a crucial role. Crucial role. CIOs should be helping their businesses prepare for increased remote working during the coronavirus outbreak, says Andrew Hewitt. Analyst at Forrester. Primarily, they should be re revisiting the technology stack that's essential for remote work and ensuring that it has the capacity to meet increased demand when more employees start working from home. Creating an action plan for remote work in some businesses will not be straightforward. 
Gartner Senior Research Director Sandy Shen says, coronavirus is a wake-up call for organizations that have chosen to focus on daily operational needs at the expense of investing in digital business and long-term resilience. Very true, by the way. Businesses in this position must turn to the cloud for IT leaders looking to get more to get remote workers up and running quickly, Foresters Hewitt suggests focusing on three core areas. First, collaboration, ensuring employees have access to video conferencing technologies, know how to use them, and have them installed ahead of time. Second, information access, ensuring employees can get access to their most important work files and documents so they can maintain their productivity while working from home. Tools like FileSync and Share, such as Dropbox, Box, OneDrive, are essential during this period. And security, ensuring employees are taking the right precautions to protect enterprise data that's in remote location. This could mean having employees update their passcodes prior to working remotely and urging employees to transfer files to cloud-based systems to avoid overloading VPN systems. However, getting technology in place is just one part of the remote working puzzle, just as some firms have been slow to make the most collaborative technologies. Some others have been slow to take advantage of the more flexible ways of working that digital age allows. Present presenteeism remains the norm for many companies. The Chartered Institute of Personal Development suggests more than four-fifths of employees have observed presenteeism in the form of going to work when ill in their organization. That's a, that's a lot of people, 83%. A quarter say that the problem has gotten worse in the past 12 months. When the potentially devastating impact of COVID-19 comes into play, then the perception, perception from employees that they must turn up to work, whatever the personal cost, starts to look even more dangerous. In many ways, our preparedness to allow people to work flexibly hasn't advanced as quickly as the technology that affords this transformation. Whether they're ill or well, many employees still suffer from nagging sense of guilt if they're not seen sitting at a desk in an office all day and management perceptions add to that feeling of guilt. So what does that mean for small businesses? Um, So you could set up work from home for your employees fairly easily. Uh, I know all of my clients... Almost all of my clients have their file shares set up so that it can be accessed from anywhere with their computers. Um, some of them require extra licensing and so forth to get it moving forward for work from home, but that's okay. That's that's not a big deal. There there is remote desktop options now. With remote desktop come remote Windows remote desktop comes risk, and so if you're going to use that, you should be doing it over VPN. And so if you don't have VPN or um, if you don't have VPN, you shouldn't use it, but there are other options out there to allow that to happen. You do have things like Dropbox, OneDrive, um, that will work great for temporary solutions depending on the size of your business. If you're a, if you're, if you're a larger business, you're not gonna wanna use, OneDrive may not be the best option or Dropbox may not be the best option, but a smaller you know, five, six people business that could work. Um, I think the most important thing is going to be security. So nothing changes. And all of my clients are either on G Suite or Office 365, and that will work anywhere. Um, with multi-factor authentication, of course, we'll have to do a little extra work, but it's not nothing that can't, can't be overcome. Um, collaboration software. So you do have Slack and Team, Microsoft Teams, to communicate. Um, you also have Zoom and, and similar software out there to allow for video conferencing, Zoom probably being the easiest and, and most common at this point uh, and most affordable. So these are all things that it's, it's easy to accomplish now. And so this is what we should be looking at. Businesses, for the most part, 
can do work from home or at least some, partially work from home. I get there are some businesses that can't, restaurants you can't, you know, healthcare you really can't. Some parts of healthcare you can't, other parts you can't. So it can be done. And it should be done if, if, if you're not if it's not necessary for you to be in the office, it should be work from home. Um, if you're going to need to purchase hardware, you're going to want to do that ASAP because there is going to be a shortage on some hardware, uh, including laptops, I suspect. And there already was a shortage on Intel processors. So I, I expect that there will be more shortages coming soon. Um, and so that's going to that's going to take care of that topic working from home it is an option and i think almost every industry is capable of doing that the only ones that aren't are the ones that need to be hands on so if your your healthcare providers you know nurses doctors so forth they're not going to be able to work from home but um minimize your exposure i guess would be best um you know your restaurant workers and to some degree people that are needed in grocery stores food delivery and uh, pharmacies and things like that. So some of that is going to be going to need to be people in person. If there's things like plumbing or, or electrical that need to be done, you can't do that remotely. So, um, next up, we have an article here. Apple, this is how you should disinfect your iPhone, iPad, and Mac. I thought this was interesting because, um, well, I thought it was interesting for two reasons. So I'll get to that. One is uh, the timing of it. They actually put this out just before the outbreak, even though the article says March 10th, but they announced this before. And so I thought it was important. And this is Apple. So the same pr is probably true of most uh, tablets and phones. But don't mess it up because liquid damage isn't covered under Apple warranty or Apple care. A few weeks ago, ZDNet posted a simple and as it turned out, timely question over on Twitter. How often do you disinfect your smartphone? Two-thirds of the respondents answered never. My kids are part of that two-thirds for sure. How things change and quickly now that COVID-19 coronavirus has reared its ugly head, sanitizing gadgets that we hold in our hands and pockets all the time, take to the bathroom with us, and then hold exceedingly close, closely so to the orifices on our faces makes more sense. Apple has updated how to clean your Apple products instructions to res in response to coronavirus to include information on how to sanitize all things Apple. Apple recommends using 70% isopropyl alcohol wipe or Clorox disinfecting wipes to gently wipe this hard, non-porous surfaces of your Apple products, such as the display, keyboard, or other exterior surfaces. Sounds simple, but there are caveats. Don't use bleach. That should be a no-brainer. Avoid getting moisture in any opening. Don't submerge Apple products in any cleaning agents. And don't use disinfectant on fabric or leather surfaces. Also, owners of Apple's $6,000 Pro Display XDR monitor featuring the nano texture glass need to be aware that the device has its own special cleaning instructions. Failing to follow these care instructions could damage the display. Apple's also keen to a point, point out that if during the cleaning process any liquid makes its way into the product, you could be in a world of hurt and that the liquid damage isn't covered under the Apple product warranty or Apple care protection plans. So take care to prevent liquid damage and bear in mind Apple is good at spotting liquid damage. It generally gives disinfectant wipes a gentle ring to remove excess moisture. Apple also has a big list of do's and don'ts. Use only soft, lint-free cloth. Avoid abrasive cloth, towels, paper towels, or similar items. Avoid excessive wiping, which might cause damage. Unplug all external power sources, services, and cables. Keep liquids away from the product unless otherwise noted for specific products. Don't get moisture into any openings. Don't use aerosol sprays, bleaches, or abrasives. And don't spray cleaners directly into the item. 
And then our last focus is, um, I mentioned it a few minutes ago, the coronavirus maps. So this is on Krebs on security. Cyber criminals constantly latch on to news items that captivate the public's attention, but usually they do so by sensationalizing the topic or spreading misinformation about it. Recently, however, cyber crooks have started disseminating real-time accurate information about global infection rates tied to the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic and a bid to infect computers with malicious software. In one scheme, an interactive dashboard of coronavirus infections and deaths produced by John Hopkins University is being used in malicious websites and possibly spam emails to spread password-stealing malware. Late last month, a member of several Russian-language cybercrime forums began selling a digital coronavirus infection kit that uses the Hopkins Interactive Map as part of the Java-based malware deployment scheme. The kit costs $200 if the buyer already has a Java code or signing certificate and $700 if the buyer wishes to use the seller's certificate. It loads a fully working online map of coronavirus-infected areas and other data, the seller explains. Map is resizable, interactive, and has real-time data from World Health Organization and other sources. Users will think that preloader is actually a map, so they will open it and will spread it to their friends, and it goes viral. The sales thread claims the customer's payload can be bundled with Java-based map into a file name that most webmail providers allow in sent messages. The seller claims in a demonstration video that Gmail also allows it, but the video shows Gmail still warns recipients that most webmail, oh, I'm sorry, still warns recipients that downloading the specific file type in question, obscured in video, can be harmful. The seller sa- says the user victim has to have Java installed for the map and exploit to work, but that it will work even on full, fully patched versions of Java. Loader loads .jar files, which has real working interactive coronavirus detail, real-time data map, and a payload it can be separate loader. The seller said in a video, loader can pre-download only map and payload will be downloaded and will be loaded after the map is launched to show map faster to users. Or vice versa, payload can be pre-downloaded and launched first. It's unclear how many takers the seller has had, but earlier this week, security experts began warning of new malicious websites being stood up that use interactive versions of the same map to distract visitors while the sites tried to foist the password stealing Azor A-Z-O-R-U-L-T malware. So it's A-Z-O-R-U-L-T. As long as the pandemic remains front page news, malware surveyors, purveyors will continue to use it as lures to share, to snare the unwary. Keep your guard up and avoid opening attachments sent in unhidden in emails. Sent unbidden. I don't know what that means. Sent unbidden. Maybe it's supposed to be unhidden. Even if they appear to come from someone you know. A tip of the hat to the hold security for heads up with this malware offering so that the map and i mentioned it already if you go to coronavirus.jhu.edu you'll see an interactive map that includes uh, the number of total deaths total confirmed cases total recovered and so forth and then you can drill down to areas and see how many cases and and all the stats so um that one is legitimate, coronavirus.jhu.edu. But then what people are doing is taking that map and including it in their websites and their downloads and then wrapping it with malware, essentially. And this is causing, this is what's causing the problems. Um, so don't download that map if you need to, if you want to look at it or need to look at it, coronavirus.jhu.edu. And coronavirus is spelled C O R O N A V I R U S dot jhu.edu. Um, Hopefully that helps 
curb the spread of malware um, because, you know, oh, I, I'm sorry, it's so coronavirus.jhu.edu slash map.html. So, again, hopefully that helps curb the spread of the malware and we can eliminate any damage caused by um, you know this this malicious type of activity all right let's do a little HIPAA education and we did have our first HIPAA enforcement of 2020 um, healthcare provider pays a hundred thousand dollar settlement to OCR for failing to implement HIPAA security rule requirements, and this is going to be a pure case of negligence, as you're going to hear. Um, I actually shared Roger Severino's quote on Instagram and a few other social platforms this week, so you can go look for that. Uh, the Instagram is Nwaj Tech and WAJ Tech, but I'll also read it here. So a healthcare provider pays $100,000 settlement to OCR for failing to implement HIPAA security rule requirements. This is the press release from the OCR. The practice of Stephen A. Porter, MD, has agreed to pay $100,000 to the Office of Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and to adopt a corrective action plan to settle a potential violation of the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act security rule. Dr. Porter's Medical practice provides gastroenterological services to over 3,000 patients per year in Ogden, Utah. OCR began investigating Dr. Porter's medical practice after it filed a breach report with OCR related to the dispute with a business associate. OCR's investigation determined that Dr. Porter had never conducted a risk analysis at the time of the breach report, and despite significant technical assistance throughout the throughout the investigation, had failed to complete an accurate and thorough risk analysis after the breach and failed to implement security measures sufficient to reduce risks and vulnerabilities to a reasonable and appropriate level. So what does all that mean? Essentially, what happened was Dr. Porter filed a, a dispute with a business associate. And um, I don't know if the, if the agreement has that information. I don't think it does. But in... In the investigation, the OCR investigated the whole thing and determined that Dr. Porter never conducted a risk analysis, which is part of the HIPAA rules, right? And um, said, hey, you need to do this. You need to do a security risk analysis, and you need to do A, B, and C for your HIPAA to be HIPAA compliant. And they didn't do it. So OCR came in and said, do this. And you're good to go. They didn't do it. They ignored the OCR. And then the OCR came back and said, you didn't do it. And now we're going to um, have to fine you. So there probably was a fine much more significant than $100,000. Dr. Porter and the OCR negotiated down to 100000 And so here's the quote from, from Roger Severino. All healthcare providers, large and small, small, again, small. I'm going to say it again, small. It doesn't matter how small you are. Like I said, I work with a one-person psychiatric um, practice. Just one person. He has his wife do the, the, the billing, and he does everything else. One person. So it doesn't matter how small you are. All health care providers, large and small, 
need to take their HIPAA obligations seriously, said OCR Director Roger Severino. The failure to implement basic HIPAA requirements such as an accurate and thorough risk analysis and risk management plan continues to be an unacceptable and disturbing trend within the healthcare industry. Now, um, <clears throat> that said, so the failure to implement basic HIPAA requirements such as an accurate and thorough risk analysis and risk management plan, meaning they didn't do the analysis and not only they did not do the analysis, but there were things that needed to be addressed that they also didn't do. Uh, I thought I saw that this goes back to 2013, but for some reason I'm not seeing that now. And um, let's see if it's in the in the agreement. But um, so what does that tell you? It tells you they don't care how small you are, that you will have to, you still have to, you still fall under, fall under HIPAA, the HIPAA rules. You fall under HIPAA if you transmit healthcare, PHI, protected health information, electronically to an insurance company. And as long as you do that, then you fall under HIPAA and you're in the U.S., of course. So, okay, so the, it does include the name of the business associate, which is Elevation 43. Um, okay, now I remember this. So, yeah, the Elevation 43 is was an EMR... EHR electronic health record company and they the Dr. Porter didn't pay them they owed them $50,000 and so the Elevation 43 refused to allow access to the EPHI to Dr. Porter until Elevation 43 paid the 50,000 until I'm sorry Dr. Porter paid the $50,000 so and here's what so I'll read the, the factual background. OCR initiated a compliance review of the practice following receipt of the practice's breach report. Yeah, it was 2013. On November 21st, 2013. So this is six and a half years ago. The practice's breach report claimed that Elevation 43, a business associate of Dr. Porter's electronic health record company, was impermissibly using a practice's patient's electronic protected health information by blocking the practice's access to such EPHI until Dr. Porter paid Elevation $43,50,000. OCR's investigation of the practice revealed that practice demonstrated significant noncompliance with HIPAA rules and the following covered conduct uh, occurred. The practice failed to implement policies and procedures to prevent, detect, contain, and, and correct security violations. Specifically, the practice has failed to conduct an accurate and thorough risk analysis of potential risk and vulnerabilities to the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of its EPHI. Further, the practice failed to implement security measures sufficient to reduce risk and vulnerabilities to a reasonable and appropriate level. 45 CFR 164.308A1I. The practice permitted Dr. Porter's EHR company to create, receive, maintain, or transmit EPHI on the practice's health behalf at least since 2013 without obtaining satisfactory assurances that the EHR company will appropriately safeguard the EPHI. So in addition to the $100,000 settlement, um, Dr. Porter is will be will be We'll have a, a corrective action plan in place for two years with the HHS. And that's what that means is that the HHS is going to oversee and ensure that everything is done the way it's supposed to be done for HIPAA. And that's for two years. And they're going to have milestones where they have to say, this is done, this is done, this is done. And that's for two years. So that's going to cost them some money too. So there's something to think about there. Um 
and if they if at any time during that agreement you know they they again show they're negligent then you you're potentially looking at more fines so the, you can read the entire agreement as well as the the press release which I read already on hhs.gov site for um HIPAA breach uh, settlements, HIPAA breach enforcements, and um, you know what? What did we learn from this? What we learned is that if and and I've said this before, so if OCR comes in and says, "Hey, you need to do this A, B, and C," you should be doing A, B, and C because they're not going to tell you again. The next time will be a fine, and and I think even in this case, the corrective action plan is going to cost more than the settlement. I don't know what the original agreement what the original fine would have been but in this case i'm sure it was more than a hundred thousand dollars in this case the corrective action plan is probably going to cost more than the actual settlement itself um this is a case of pure negligence meaning dr porter didn't have any intention of doing the right thing under hipaa so something to think about for your smaller practices, as you heard Roger, Roger San Marino's quote, something to think about when you say, well, HIPAA doesn't apply to me or, you know, I'm not going to do this. It's too much work or, you know, whatever, whatever the excuse and it is an excuse, whatever the excuse is, you need to stop with the excuses and start listening to the OCR and, and to some degree, listen to me. All right, we don't have, it is time for the HIPAA breach report. We don't have a lot this week, and I suspect it's because the HHS is dealing with the COVID-19 outbreak, but let's go through what we have. The University of Kentucky has been battling to remove malware that was downloaded on its network in February of 2020. Cyber criminals gained access to the UK network and installed cryptocurrency mining malware that was used to use the processing capability of the UK computers to mine Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. The malware caused a considerable slowdown of the network with temporary failures of its computer system, causing repeated daily interruptions to day-to-day -day functions, in particular at UK Healthcare. UK believes the attack was resolved on Sunday morning after a month-long effort. On Sunday morning, UK performed a major reboot of its IT systems, a process that took around three hours. UK believes the attackers have now been removed from its system, and although they will be monitoring the network closely to ensure that external access has been blocked, the attack is believed to have originated from outside the United States. UK Healthcare, which operates UK Albert B. Chandler Hospital and Good Samaritan Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, serves more than 2 million patients. While computer systems were severely impacted at times, patient care was not affected and patient safety was not part put at risk. An internal investigation was launched and third-party computer forensic specialists were engaged to assist with the investigation. University spokesman Jay Blanton said it was hard to determine whether any sensitive data was viewed or downloaded. The belief is that malware attack was solely conducted to hijack the vast, the, the vast processing capabilities of UK network to mine cryptocurrency. Um, Arkansas Children's Hospital reboots systems to deal with cybersecurity threat. Arkansas Children's Hospital in Little Rock has experienced a cyber attack that has impacted Arkansas Children's Hospital and Arkansas Children's Northwest. Its IT systems have been rebooted in an attempt to deal with the cyber threat, and third-party digital forensics firm has been engaged to assist on the investigation. The exact nature of the threat has not yet been disclosed, and it is currently unclear when the attack will be resolved. All facilities are continuing to provide 
medical service to patients, but some non-urgent appointments have been rescheduled. And this investigation is ongoing. It doesn't have a date. I'm assuming it was within the last few days. We have a report here that says 53% of healthcare organizations have experienced a PHI breach in the past 12 months. I did report this in an earlier episode of the Proactive IT Cybersecurity Daily. So I'm just going to skim real quick. The 2019 Global State of Cybersecurity and Small and Medium-Sized Businesses report from Keeper Security shows approximately two-thirds of healthcare organizations have experienced a data breach in the past, and 53% have experienced a breach of protected health information in the past 12 months. That is pretty scary. The survey was conducted by Ponemon Institute on 2,391 IT and IT security professionals in the United States, UK, DACH, Benelux and Scandinavia, including 219 respondents from the healthcare industry. So it's a small sample when you compare it to how many healthcare providers there are around, around the world. But in that sample, 53% have experienced a breach of PHI in the last 12 months. Um, and then um, one other, two other HIPAA breaches, sorry, relational. Insurance Inc., an insurance brokerage firm doing business as Relation Insurance Services of Georgia. RISG experienced an email security breach in August 2019. An unauthorized individual was discovered to have gained access to the email account of an employee and potentially viewed or copied emails containing protected health information. The breach was detected on August 15th when suspicious activity was detected in the email account. A third-party computer forensics firm assisted with the investigation and determined that the account was accessed by an unauthorized individual between August 14th and 15th. On August 16th, RISG determined the account contained PHI. However, it took until December 13th, 2019 for a full review of the account to be completed to determine which individuals have been affected and exactly what information was potentially compromised. The account was found to contain a wide range of information which differed from individual to individual. The breached PHI may have included name, address, telephone number, email address, date of birth, driver's license number, social security number, passport number, state-issued identification number, copies of marriage or birth certificates, account and routing number, financial institution name, credit debit card number, PIN, expiration date, treatment information, prescription information, provider name, medical record, number, patient ID, health insurance information, treatment costs, medical history, mental or physical condition, diagnosis code, procedure type, procedure code, treatment location, admission date, discharge date, medical device number, and date of death. And then another um, breach, Jefferson, Wisconsin-based Rainbow Hospice Care Inc. has discovered an employee's email account, has been accessed by an unauthorized individual, and protected health information of 2029 current and former patients have been viewed or downloaded. Third-party forensic investigators were engaged to investigate the breach. While they confirmed that the account has been accessed by an unauthorized individual, they were unable to determine whether any patient information was accessed or exfiltrated. An analysis of the compromised account revealed it contained patient names, dates of birth, treatment information, medical record numbers, and social security numbers. Patients have been notified about the breach and have been offered complimentary credit monitoring. Um, in this case, it doesn't say when the breach happened, so I don't know. But the previous one we talked about, uh, Relational Insurance, Relation Services of Georgia did not uh, comply with the 60-day breach notification rule. Um, and in both cases, we're still seeing, you know, these phishing attacks that are that are succeeding. Um, 
so not good news. We're just we're just continue to not have accounts set up with multi-factor authentication. We continue to have um, accounts have PHI email accounts with PHI in them. It it doesn't it shouldn't happen, and we continue to not have phishing mitigation, phishing training, and testing. So. Uh, that is it for the HIPAA breach report. I told you that it, it is a light week for HIPAA breaches, again, probably due to the COVID-19 outbreak. I'm sure HHS is quite busy with that. Um, with that being said, stay secure until next week and stay healthy. Um, just be extra vigilant when it comes to anything digital related, you know, especially emails, text messages, and things like that. Uh, don't click it. If you didn't ask for it, don't click it. And um, we'll talk again next week.